0: Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mahfud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of Enroute Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Well, welcome to week thirteen, of General Norms, Canon Law one. Let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we're going to speak today about obtaining an ecclesiastical office by way of election. We have, prior to this time, looked at the notion of free conferral with regard to obtaining an ecclesiastical office, and then presentation as a means of obtaining an ecclesiastical office. Now we're looking at election. Let's look at Canon 164. Unless the law has provided otherwise, the prescriptions of the following canons are to be observed in canonical elections. Now, what does that mean? Well, now, what does that mean? Well, for example, these canons do not include papal elections. So, papal elections are governed by their own particular law, of course, the uh, the law was changed by John Paul II and by Benedict XVI with regard to procedures for these elections for the Bishop of Rome. So they're going to be a bit different, not not substantially different, but a bit different than the canons here dealing with elections. Also, keep in mind that religious. These institutes of consecrated life or societies of apostolic life have their own constitutions, which, while they cannot be contrary uh, to the code, to the universal legislation, they may differ a bit with regard to procedure and, and what have you, which is certainly fine. One of the major themes of the Second Vatican Council with regard to religious life was that These religious communities, these religious orders need to get back to their roots. They need to get back to the intention of of their founders or foundresses and sort of rediscover their charism, rediscover their authentic apostolate. And so the law gives pretty broad parameters in which each institute may do that, and therefore that's certainly true with regard to their constitutions and oftentimes with regard to the appointment, the selection of superiors and individuals in roles of responsibility within the community. So while, again, these particular laws are not to be contrary to the code, they may differ a bit with regard to methodology. All right, let's look at Canon 165 here, shall we? Unless the law or the legitimate statutes of a college or group provide otherwise, if a college or group of persons has the right of election to office, the election is not to be deferred beyond three months of available time from the receipt of the notice of the vacancy of the office. If this period of time has elapsed without action, the ecclesiastical authority having the right to confirm the election or provide for the office successfully is to make provision freely for the vacant office. Okay, and so, in other words, this is a a safety feature. If the group or the body charged with the election doesn't fulfill their, their function, well, someone else is allowed, is able to step in and, uh, provide for this inadequacy. Again, oh, we, we've seen that in, even in the last class with regard to presentation, that these are, these are safety nets so that these offices will not be unoccupied indefinitely. Again, that puts the church in jeopardy, that the, 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 the people, the, the, they're like sheep without a shepherd, going back to that, to that the scriptural image. And again, very important to notice how the canon begins, uh, Canon 165, unless the law or legitimate statutes of a college or group provide otherwise. So here, and, and we're going to see this throughout these canons, the universal law is going to tip its head. It's going to defer, if you will, to particular law, and that is legitimate statutes of a college or group of persons. So So, again, that would be a religious community, So, for example. So, a religious community whose statutes, constitutions, have been approved by the legitimate ecclesiastical authority. Well, the universal legislator here, oftentimes, is going to defer to the particular law governing uh, that institution. Again, it goes back to the notion that Law is supposed to be an ordinance or not supposed to be. Law is an ordinance of reason. So the the particular law may be more reasonable, if you will, than the universal law with regard to this particular religious community. All right. Let's look at Canon 166, shall we? Paragraph 1. The presiding officer of the college or group shall convoke all the members of the college or group, and the notice of convocation... When it must be communicated to each member personally is valid if it is directed to the place of domicile or quasi-domicile or actual residence. Okay. Very important here are several things. Again, who's the presiding officer of the college or the group? Well, that determined by particular law, by particular, by the statutes of, let's say, the religious community. Alright. Shall convoke all the members of the college or group. This is very important. The law foresees that with regard to these matters, people are actually physically assembled. We're not talking about Skype or a conference call via the telephone. None of that. We're talking about individuals who are physically together. Alright? And then of course, it's the communication of the notice of convocation. But again, Canon 166, paragraph one, is fulfilling one of the, uh, you remember these basic rules of law, that nemo tenetur impossibile. No one is held to what is impossible. So, all the presiding officer is to do is to legitimately communicate the notice of convocation to each member personally. Alright, either to their domicile, quasi-domicile, or actual residence. So if they do that and the individual member throws the notice away or loses the notice, that's not the presiding officer's problem. Alright, the presiding officer has done his or her duty, has done his or her function, and the rest is up to the, to the individual. Let's look at paragraph two here, shall we? If one of those to be convoked is overlooked, and is therefore absent, the election is valid. However, upon the instance of such a one, and after proof of the oversight and absence, the election, even if it has been confirmed, must be rescinded by the competent authority, provided that it has been juridically established, that recourse was made within at least three days of receipt of the notice of election. Okay, this again is to provide, again, for, all right, there are going to be maybe some hiccups in the process. Humanity is flawed. Errors are made if one person is overlooked or whatnot. And again, the, the canon is expressly stating, though implicitly, this is not due to what we would call dolus. In other words, that there's not a, a direct intention by the presiding officer to overlook a person. It was simply through inadvertence. The election's valid. Again, it provides for the well-maintaining of the progress that all, okay, all the other electors are there, and therefore, for the, the, the greater good of the church, for the good of the community, uh, this election is going to be looked upon as being valid. However, again, there is a corrective here. That if indeed the oversight is discovered within this specific time frame, the election's rescinded. The canon, I believe, highlights paragraph two highlights that uh, presiding officers need to do their homework. We need to know, alright, who is capable of participating in the election and make sure that there is a notification sent out to all. Let's look at paragraph three here. But if more than one- third of the electors were overlooked, the election is invalid by the law itself, unless all those overlooked were in fact present. Again, so this is the law is providing for the contingencies of humanity and the laws uh, attempting to be fair, just, expeditious, weighing the rights of the individual electors and also the rights of the community at large and the good of the church. So all of these things are sort of in balance here. And again, I would argue that Canon 166, paragraph 3 would expressly, uh, would would imply here that if more than one-third of the electors were overlooked, uh, this would be, I would argue, doless. In other words, it, it appears that there's something nefarious afoot, that the the presiding uh, officer is purposefully attempting to alter the outcome of the election, or, heaven help us, is just completely, woefully inadequate for the job. Okay, that's not unheard of in the Church. Don't quote me on that one. Let's look at Canon 167 here, shall we? Once the convocation has been legitimately made, those present on the day... The place designated in the convocation have the right to vote. The faculty of voting by mail or by proxy is excluded unless the statutes legitimately provide otherwise. Again, depending on the nature of the election for whom the election is intended, uh, the subject matter mail or proxy may be a legitimate means approved by a particular law. I think this is generally speaking a bad idea. The mind of the legislator is that elections are to be held by a group of individuals physically in proximity with with one another, participating actively in the election process. Let's look at paragraph two here of Canon 167, shall we? If one of the electors is present in the house in which the election takes place, but cannot be present for the election because of ill health, his or her written ballot is to be obtained by the tellers. Okay, and this, this happens frequently. Unfortunately, tragically, this is the way it is with many religious communities that you have a number of elderly members who may not be ambulatory, who may indeed be confined to, to their room or to a bed. And while they, they certainly have their faculties, they have their wits of them, uh, they just physically would be incapable of the stamina of participating in an election. So the law again provides for this that they certainly may participate in the election and that their written ballot may be obtained by, by uh, the teller. But th- what is important is that they're in the house. In other words, there is still some type of physical proximity and this less, lessens the danger, if you will, that the election is not going to be valid uh, or is in some way going to be um, influenced. Okay, let's look at Canon 168. Even if a person has the right to vote in his or her own name by more than one title, such a person can cast only one ballot. Okay, so certainly at times an individual holds different positions in a community Well, simply because an individual has different positions in the community, maybe one of council members, superior, what have you, that doesn't mean that they have, because of each title, numerous votes that that they're able to cast. Again, this is to ensure democracy, if you will, that no one person in the community has an undue influence because, again, an election of its very nature is to be a rather democratic um, process. Okay, Canon 169. In order that the election be valid, no one can be permitted to vote who is not a member of the college or the group. All right, and again, that would be nonsensical that someone who would not be uh, eligible to vote would vote. Let's look at Canon 170. An election whose freedom was in fact impaired in any way whatsoever is invalid by the law itself. Okay, this is, this is an interesting canon. We go back to canon 125. An act placed because of extrinsic force brought to bear upon a person which a person was in no way able to resist is considered not to have been placed. Paragraph 2. An act placed because of grave fear which has been unjustly inflicted or because of fraud is valid unless the law makes some other provision, okay? Well, here, again, an election whose freedom was, in fact, impaired in any way is invalid, all right? So so we see Canon 125 being in some way derogated by Canon 170. And and again, with regard to Canon 170, there's a high mark, a high level of, of freedom with regard to these elections. That the, those who participate in the election, those who have the right to vote, should feel safe, secure, free, and without any type of coercion. Let's look at Canon 171. Those persons are ineligible to vote. Now, this is important to look at the phrasing of the law. It doesn't say that these are the persons who are able to vote. This, these are the persons who are ineligible to vote. So, This would constitute, according to Canon 18, an exception to the law. And therefore, because it's an exception to the law, meaning the legislator's mindset, the presumption of legislator is that people have the capacity to exercise their rights, should have the freedom to exercise their rights, and are responsible in doing so. All right, that's the presumption of law. This would be contrary to the presumption of law here. So, those persons are ineligible to vote. So, this would be a taxative list, basically. These exceptions must be pretty clear. Why? Because they have to be narrowly, strictly interpreted. Okay, those persons are ineligible to vote. Number one, who are incapable of placing a human act. Now, it's very important for us to look at the Latin text here. Because the Latin text, the the meaning really jumps off the page the canon uses two terms, inhabilis or inhabiles is the plural, and then if you look at number one, incapax, all right? So, inhabilis is a term of art in the law, and it means that someone who may be per se capable, per se means intrinsically, huh? So, a person who is per se capable is rendered incapable by the law so a person who may indeed have the requisite qualifications all things being equal to vote well the law renders them incapable for a specific reason conversely the term incapax which is used in section 1 of paragraph 1 incapax means someone is radically that is per se incapable so in Habilis, they're capable, per se capable, but the law is basically disabling them. That's inhabilis. In copox, the person is per se incapable, intrinsically, radically incapable. All right. Now, what does this mean, a person is incapable of placing a human act? Okay. The, the term in that we that we use in the law really would refer to, we, we make an analogy here back to marriage law, we look at canon 1095, 1095 deals with psychological incapacity. And psychological incapacity, according to canon 1095, it, it, it may be permanent, or it may be transitory. So if you look at canon 1095, number one, those who lack sufficient use of reason, two, those who lack for grave defect of discretion of judgment, and paragraph three, who are incapable of assuming the obligations of marriage. So these would all be looked upon as a radical psychological incapacity, a psychological anomaly where the person is unable, intrinsically per se unable, to understand and or to will the essential matrimonial rights and obligations, or they psychologically can understand and will the essential rights and obligations. Marriage. However, psychologically, they cannot fulfill them for whatever reason. Okay? So, in complex is a pretty high standard. It means a radical incapacity. So, what does it mean here in Canon 171? Well, it would first of all refer to, I would argue, someone who has suffering from some type of psychological anomaly, alright, which is intrinsic and grave, where they are unable to will or they're unable to understand, basically, what they're doing. It could also refer to a very temporary thing, where, let's say, a person is suffering from perfect drunkenness, all right? The law dichotomizes drunkenness from imperfect uh, to perfect. Imperfect would be that the person is in the state of intoxication, however, the person still knows where they are, who they are, what they're doing, uh, but it's it's impaired. Perfect drunkenness would be the person has no idea who they are, where they are, what they're doing. They would have no no recall at all. Uh, again, that person would be in cowpox in that situation. Now again, it's transitory. Hopefully they will sober up. However, in that state of perfect drunkenness, they would be in cowpox for a good nap. So this means that there's no reflection. There's no freedom. There's no critical judgment. So when we're speaking about a human act, we're speaking of a moral act. We're speaking of an act done with reflection, with critical judgment, and with freedom. Obviously, a state of perfect drunkenness, that's not going to occur. Section 2, who lack active voice. All right. Active voice means that someone is able, capable, according to the law, to cast a ballot. So, active voice, you can vote. Passive voice, you can be elected. Active voice, you can vote. Passive voice, you can be elected. Section 3. Those who have been excommunicated either by a judicial sentence or by a decree in virtue of which the penalty has been inflicted or declared. All right. So, uh, after a, a trial, all right, the ordinary contentious trial, uh, a person can be penalized with a, a uh, an ecclesiastical sanction, an ecclesiastical penalty. All right, this would be a court after a trial in inflicting this, or it can be by virtue of an administrative act by the competent ecclesiastical authority, uh, declaring that a person has incurred an ecclesiastical sanction. So, for example, Let's say that someone has publicly, its it come to light that someone has desecrated the Blessed Sacrament. All right. The competent ecclesiastical authority may simply issue a decree stating that because of this action, the person had ipso facto incurred by the very act itself an automatic excommunication reserved to the Holy See. All right. So... The ecclesiastical authority isn't inflicting the penalty. The ecclesiastical authority is simply declaring what has been inflicted by the law itself, has been incurred, rather, by the law itself. That would be a decree, or declared, rather, rather than inflicted. Inflicted would be the judicial sentence. Declared would be simply publicizing what has already occurred. This would be by way of an administrative or executive authority, rather. Than judicial authority. All right. Four, those who have notoriously defected from the communion of the church. All right, notoriously defected is either uh, is one of two species, either de facto or de jure. De facto would be the community at large because of the social media, the internet, the news, the newspaper, the television, the radio have chronicled that this person has notoriously abandoned his or her Catholic faith, right? Or, that's de facto. De jure would be where an ecclesiastical authority, possibly a tribunal or possibly a competent ecclesiastical authority, such as the local ordinary, has simply declared that the person has notoriously defected from the Catholic Church. Alright, that would be another way by which this would be known. So when we say notoriously, it has to be public. There has to be some public understanding of this. So in other words, a woman religious or a man religious who would hold that a private erroneous opinion of women should be ordained to the priesthood and that uh, Jesus or that Jesus never established the sacrament of what? Of well, let, let, let's say that, that let's really go out on the limb. Jesus never established the sacrament of baptism. That was a post-resurrection apostolic invention. All right. Okay. That person is in grave error, and I would dare say uh, not only with the second object of uh, divine of faith, but primary object of faith. However. If, if if it's simply held privately by the individual and there's no extrinsic understanding of this, then they haven't at least according to the law broken communion with the church. There's not a notorious break of communion with the church. Uh and therefore the person would still be, again, this is the the titles here in one seventy one must be very strictly uh interpreted in light of canon eighteen because this is an exception the person would not be understood as notoriously defecting from communion with the Church. Let's look at paragraph 2 here of 171. If one of the above has been admitted, the vote is null, but the election is valid, unless it is clear that by subtracting the vote, the person elected did not receive the required number of votes. Okay, and again, this is this is to sort of straddle uh, what what's, would be reasonable here. All right, what would be reasonable? All right, so a person in this uh, circumstance, their vote doesn't count. Uh, Hopefully, their vote really doesn't matter all that much with regard to the election. The person would have still been elected, and no one is worse for the wear. All right, let's look at Canon 172, paragraph 1. For a vote to be valid, it must be number 1, free. Therefore, a vote is invalid if one has been coerced directly or indirectly by grave fear or by fraud to vote for a certain person or different persons disjunctively. All right, again, this Canon 172, paragraph 1, section 1, would derogate from the canon I alluded to earlier, Canon 125, with regard to fear and the validity of an act. So even indirect, would render the vote invalid. Section 2. For a vote to be valid, it must be secret, certain, absolute, determinant. Okay, what does that mean? Secret, it means that it's no one's business with regard to a person's ballot. So a person doesn't have to publicly state, I'm voting for John Smith or, or, or Jane Doe. All right, so they have the right to privacy. there. are certain... Well, what does that mean? That means that there's no ambiguity as to what the person is intending, all right? So, it's a specific person for a specific office. There's no use of the subjunctive, shall we say. Maybe this person would be good. It's not portatory anything like that. So, it's certain. Absolute, it means that it's without condition. There's no conditional clauses. I'm going to vote for so-and-so. On the condition that he or she increases the pay of members of the community or changes the wallpaper in the dining room, something like that. Okay. And lastly, determinant. That means the vote must be for a specific person and a specific office. All right. So I am voting for John Doe to be the superior of the house, or I'm voting for John Doe to be a member of the College of Consulters for the order, whatever, or to be on the provincial council, or to be vice-provincial, or to be provincial. All right, so this is where the vote has to be determined. Determinant and certain certainly kind of go uh, hand in hand. Certain refers to the wording that it must be indicative not to be subjunctive uh, in its tone. Let's look at paragraph two here, shall we? Conditions. To a vote prior to the election are to be considered as not having been appended. All right, so we don't even we don't even consider those things. Let's look at canon, and I would be this there would be somewhat a this would be dubious as far as we want to make sure that the conditions are not in any way incorporated into the specific vote at the time that it's given. Let's look at canon 173, shall we? Before the election begins, at least two tellers are to be designated from the membership of the college or the group. All right, and again, this would be by particular law. So, these are going to be the individuals who are going to collect the ballots, count them up, etc. But again, how they're chosen should be enumerated in the particular statutes of the community or of the group. Let's look at paragraph two here, 173. The tellers are to gather the ballots, determine in the of the presiding officer that the number of ballots is the same as the number of electors, read the ballots themselves and announce clearly how many votes each person has received, number three. If the number of ballots exceeds the number of electors, the vote is invalid, Paragraph report. The secretary is to record accurately all the acts of the election. And carefully preserve them in a file of the college after signing them along with at least the presiding officer and the teller. So there is also to be someone there, the secretary, to record all of these events. All right. So basically we have, we have four people here who are involved in sort of the nuts and bolts, if you will, of the election. We have the presiding officer. We have the two tellers. And then we have the secretary who's recording these events. Uh, this is again very important that the secretary would chronicle, alright, how many ballots it took to elect the superior, what the numbers were, uh, with regard to the voting, who also received votes, things such as that. That's just important to chronicle. And again, signatures are required. We don't want these stamps or anything like that. The signature authenticates the document by the secretary and it is proof that these individuals indeed saw these things, saw these uh, materials, and signed off on them. Let's look at Canon 174 here, shall we? Unless the law or the statutes provide otherwise, an election can also be affected by compromise, provided that the electors unanimously and in writing consent to transfer to a qualified individual or several qualified individuals from within the membership or from without it, or from outside it, the right to elect for that instance. Such person or persons elect in the name of all in virtue of the faculty they have received. Okay, so compromise is a legitimate form of election. And in fact, uh, up until uh, 1996, Universi Domenici Gregius, the decree of Pope John Paul II with regard to the vacancy of the Holy See and papal elections, compromise was a legitimate way of electing the Roman Pontiff. That was abrogated in 1996, so it'll only be by straight election, by ballot. So here, compromise is the, let's say that the, the group of electors is deadlocked. And there's been uh, a number of ballots and they've come up with no one. And their particular law allows that, let's say we have 40 electors. And let's say that the particular law states that after 10 ballots, if no one has been elected, then the group of 40 electors may, by compromise, choose 15 individuals from their group And these 15 individuals will therefore be the ones who will elect the person for the ecclesiastical office, let's say a superior. So, the electors, in essence, are abdicating their direct right to vote, and they are handing it on to another, to a smaller group, in the hopes that this smaller group will be able to elect a superior. Okay. And again, Depending on what the particular law for the Religious Institute or Society of Apostolic Life would state, it could even be members outside the body of electors. That would be incredibly rare, and I have no idea uh, personally where anyone's statutes would allow that, but there you have it. Let's look at paragraph 2 here, of 174. In the case of a college or group composed only of clerics, The person's commission must themselves be ordained, otherwise the election is invalid. Again, keep in mind, in the case of a college or group composed only of clerics, we're not talking about priests here, Uh, we're talking about clerics, so priests and or deacons. The person's commission must themselves be ordained. Let's look at paragraph 3 here. Person's commissioned must observe the prescription's law concerning elections, and for the validity of the election, must fulfill whatever conditions have been attached to the compromise agreement which are not contrary to the law. Conditions contrary to the law, however, are to be considered as not having been attached. Okay. So there's no contrary conditions. So simply because we're going to elect someone by a compromise, it doesn't mean all bets are off. They still have to follow the law. It's just a, a different dynamic here with regard to the election. Let's look at Canon 175. The compromise is terminated and the right to elect reverts to the electors authorizing the compromise. Number one, by revocation by the college or group before the persons commissioned have begun to act. Okay, so there may be members in the group that do not want to go to compromise and do not want to abrogate their voting rights. Okay, so it was before... Uh, this action has begun, then uh, it reverts back to the electors. Section 2, if a condition attached to the compromise agreement has not been fulfilled. All right, maybe there's, uh was a condition that they wanted so many electors who were over the age uh, or under the age of 50, and that wasn't realized. Okay, Section 3, if the election has been completed but is invalid. Okay, and there are numerous ways in which an election is invalid that we've just chronicled. Okay, let's look at Canon 176 here, shall we? Unless the law or the statutes provide otherwise, the person who has received the required number of votes according to the norm of Canon 119, number 1, is to be considered elected. And this is to be announced by the presiding officer of the college or of the group. Let's go back quickly to 119. With regard to collegial acts, that's 119, number 1. With regard to collegial acts, unless provisions is made otherwise by law or statutes, number section 1, if it is a question of election, the action is the force of law which, when the majority of those who must be convoked or present, receives the approval of an absolute majority. All right. So an absolute majority, let's say, of 10 voters, an absolute majority would be 6. We had forty voters as we spoke of earlier. The absolute majority would be twenty-one. All right. Let's look at Canon one seventy seven. The election is to be communicated forthwith to the person elected who must, within eight days of available time, that's tempest utile, in other words, eight days in which to exercise his or her rights after having been notified, inform the college by the providing officer of the group whether or not he or she accepts the election. Otherwise, the election has no effect. All right, so the person has eight days. Paragraph two, a person elected who does not accept loses any right deriving from the election and does not retain any such right by a subsequent acceptance. Such a person, however, can be elected again. The college or group must proceed to a new election within a month of notification and of non-acceptance. All All right, and again, this is to provide for the human element And there are all kinds of circumstances, situations that arrive and that come into play that may indeed affect the person's accepting or rejecting the election. Let's look at Canon 178, shall we? The person elected who has accepted the election immediately acquires the office in full right if the election does not require confirmation. Otherwise, the person acquires only the right to the office. All right. So obviously, with regard to the election of a bishop, for example, by a cathedral chapter, while the person may indeed be elected, the confirmation has to come from the Roman Pontiff. So the person cannot be elected validly. The election has no canonical effect unless it's confirmed by the Roman Pontiff. Let's look at Canon 179. If the election requires confirmation, the person elected must personally or through someone else request confirmation by the competent authority within eight days of available time from the day of acceptance of the election. Otherwise, the person elected is deprived of any right unless it is proved that the person has been constrained from petitioning confirmation by a just impediment. Okay. So for example, the election of a diocesan administrator, that does not need any confirmation. Right. Once the person is elected and he accepts the election, he's the diocesan administrator. Conversely, again, an Episcopal election, election of a bishop by a cathedral chapter, that does require confirmation from the public. Right. Paragraph 2. The competent authority cannot deny confirmation that the person elected is qualified according to the norm of Canon 149. Section 1, and the election was conducted in accord with the law. Keep in mind that the Roman pontiff can dispense from this, okay? Someone beneath the Roman pontiff could not dispense from this, but the Roman pontiff could dispense from this because this is ecclesiastical law. So the Roman pontiff theoretically certainly could say, all right, I know that you've elected this, this person, I know that he has fine credentials and that he fulfilled all the prescriptions of law. I don't want him as the bishop here. Well, the Roman Pontiff can do that. He's the Pope. Paragraph two, 3. The confirmation must be given in writing. Quote nanus in Actis nanus in mundo. If it's not written down, it doesn't exist. Number 4. Before being informed of confirmation, the person may not become involved in administration of the office, whether this be in matters spiritual or temporal, and any acts placed by such a person are indeed invalid. Paragraph 5. Once notified of confirmation, the person elected acquires the office in full right unless the law provides otherwise. Okay. Obviously, if we're talking about regard regarding confirmation of a bishop of the diocese, the person does not take canonical possession of the diocese until he has, having been elected and the election uh, confirmed, until he takes canonical possession of the diocese, that is, that he shows the papal mandate appointing him to this diocese, to the College of Consultors, in the presence of the Chancellor who notifies, who notarizes the act. Okay. Now, the question may be, why go through all this? Paragraph two. The competent authority cannot deny confirmation the person elected is qualified in court of the norm of law. Okay. Well, why go through all this? Well, two reasons there is the principle of subsidiarity foot. again the principle of subsidiarity touted in second Vatican council higher authority assists lower authority in fulfilling their munus all right so for confirmation okay this is a confirmation by the higher authority that Everything was done legally. Everything was according to the mind of the church and the discipline of the church. Also, the second reason, communio, it shows a communion, if you will, with of this body. What this body has done with regard to the, their election, their druidic act, it shows a communio with another organ, uh, uh, another body in the church, which is very important. All right, so that that principle of communio, most most important here. So why confirmation if they've got to confirm the person anyway? Well, it's the principle of subsidiarity, to be sure, but it's also the principle of communio, this communion in the church. Okay, let's look here at postulation. Canon 180, paragraph 1. If a canonical impediment, which can be and usually is dispensed prevents the election of the person whom the electors believe to be more qualified and whom they prefer. They can vote to postulate such a person from the competent authority, unless something else is provided by the law. Now, what 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 is postulation? Postulare in Latin means to demand, literally. All right, to demand. So. What What is this saying? Here, again, is where the law is reasonable and we're looking for the common good. Maybe, just maybe, you have a religious community and the pool of competent candidates for uh, the office of superior or the office of uh, vice provincial, well, the pool's rather small, all right? There aren't that many uh, in the community that would have the the wherewithal that gets the talents to do that job. And let's say, for example, that the person whom everyone wants and the person who is the most capable, let's say the person is, is overage, canonically. That they're too old. right. Let's say that the, that the particular law states that the superior can't be over 75 years of age, and the superior, 70. this person, whom every all the electors have in mind, is 76, but he or she is and hearty and sharp as all get-out. Well, again, postulation could occur, all right, again, as long as it's provided for by the law, and I would dare say that all the laws, generally speaking, provide for this, the particular laws of religious communities. Also, there may be a situation where, okay, this candidate has completed two terms, two successive terms as the superior, and the constitutions of the order prohibit uh, her or him from assuming another term. Uh, So you can't have three consecutive terms. All right. Again, by postulation, the law may provide that this can be dispensed from, and that the competent authority may be addressed to dispense from this. Let's look at paragraph two. Those commissioned to elect in virtue of compromise cannot postulate anyone unless this was expressed in their document of compromise. Okay. All right. Canon 181, paragraph 1. At least two-thirds of the votes are required for postulation to have any effect. And again, in religious communities where the communities are not all that large, this isn't a stretch to get a two-thirds vote. Paragraph 2. A vote for postulation must be expressed by the words, I postulate, or the equivalent. The formula, I elect or I postulate, or the equivalent, is valid for an election, If an impediment does not exist, otherwise for a postulation. Okay. And again, postulation is going to be provided for in the particular law of the uh, religious institute or the group. 182. A postulation must be sent within eight days of the available time by the presiding officer to the competent authority to whom confirmation of the election belongs who is authorized to grant the dispensation from the impediment or, lacking the faculty to do so, to request the dispensation from a higher authority. If confirmation is not required, the postulation must be sent to the competent authority so that the dispensation may be granted. And again, this is all provided for, generally speaking, in particular law. So, with regard to confirmation, uh, if, if, the religious institute is of diocesan right, it would be the diocesan bishop who would be the competent authority with regard to dispensations. If the institution is of pontifical right, it would have to go to the Roman dicastery and the Roman curia. So it would be the sacred Congregation for institutes of consecrated life or societies of Apostolic life. Okay, let's look at paragraph two here. If the postulation has not been sent within the prescribed time, it is by that very fact invalid, and the college or group is deprived for that instance of the right to elect or postulate, unless it is demonstrated that the presiding officer has been constrained from forwarding the postulation by a just impediment, or has failed to send it at an opportune time out of fraud or negligence, unless it is determined demonstrated the presiding law. And again, this is to put the onus on the presiding officer uh, by a just impediment or had failed to send it at the opportune time out of fraud or negligence. So this isn't to penalize the entire community because of the either negligence or again outright fraud of the presiding officer. Okay. It's the human factor again. And the law takes into account uh humanity. All right. And humanity, it all goes back to original sin. Humanity is flawed. Paragraph three. The one postulated acquires no right from the postulation. The competent authority is not obliged to admit it. All right. So here we have a whole different dynamic. It's not confirmation, it's it's postulation. It's a whole different dynamic. Four, the electors cannot revoke a postulation already sent to a competent authority unless this authority consents to it. Alright, so there may be some extraordinary circumstance that may come to the fore. Again, that would be reasonable and for the good of the church and to the community. So the law here shows flexibility. So maybe a candidate has come about that was not available prior to the time, at the time of the postulation, but a more, much more favorable candidate now is available and is and is uh, capable of, of taking assuming the responsibility. Canon 183. If the postulation has not been admitted by the competent authority, the right of electing reverts to the college or the group. Paragraph two. But if the postulation has been admitted, this is to be made known to the one postulated who is obliged to respond according to, to the norm of Canon 177, Paragraph 1. Okay, and again, this would be uh, the eight-day uh, window of, uh, of a sentence. Tempus utile, as we say, eight days of the available time. Again, it may not indeed a calendar uh, days. And then lastly, Paragraph 3. The person who accepts the postulation which has been admitted immediately acquires the office in full right pretty clear. Okay. Well, I think enough suffering for today. Thank you very much. Let us conclude in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mahfoud. Good day.